0: Misses the very thing that could save his life and save the life of his family. The only problem is one person is dead and the other person is on trial. Or he spent a year in jail before the jury acquitted him in three hours.
1: Downstream consequences can be things that you didn't even anticipate.
2: This is the In Self-Defense Podcast with Don West, Steve Moses, and Sean Vincent, exploring high-profile self-defense cases and identifying the lessons learned for concealed carriers. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I'm Sean Vincent. Glad you're here. This week, we're back with part two of our conversation with Carl Wren. Carl Wren is the founder of KR Training, krtraining.com. He's been teaching people how to shoot and defend themselves since before Texas had a concealed carry law. Carl's a friend and colleague of Steve Moses. Thank you again, Steve, for bringing such great guests to our show. Today, we're going to carry on our conversation. You know, one thing about Carl that's fascinating is he also serves as an expert witness in the prosecutions of armed defenders who face legal consequences in the wake of their self-defense shooting. He represents the armed defenders, and as a use of force expert tries to make the case as to why their use of deadly force should be considered self-defense, that gives him an extraordinary perspective on real world scenarios where real defenders get into some trouble for how they decided to deploy deadly force. There's a lot of great lessons to learn from that. And we're going to have an opportunity to hear some of those real-world experiences today. As we were wrapping up our last podcast with Carl Wren, Carl mentioned the importance of managing time and distance in a, a counter with a potential threat. And how your training and your experience and having confidence in your skills gives you more options on how to deal with an unknown threat. And uh, we talk a little bit about how defensive display of a firearm strategically, when appropriate, can be a viable alternative to going directly to deadly force. And Carl has an example from one of his students where he had a couple of encounters and used some of his training to successfully negotiate those complicated self-defense situations. Here's Carl. Um,
1: I had a student Uh, last year, who I I firmly believe that his training with us made the situation have a much better outcome. He had a homeless person that was pounding on his front door trying to get in. He had left the house. His wife calls him from in the house. She says, please come back to the house. There's a strange man pounding on the front door demanding to be let in. And uh, he pulls up, he gets out of his car. He draws to what we call our position two, which was uh, the gun is out and it's against his uh, rib cage, basically with the muzzle averted. And he's talking to the guy and he never points the gun at the guy. Well, the wife also called 911. Police officer pulls up, sees my student with his gun out and calmly says to him, I'm here now. You can put your gun away. And my student holstered and they continued on. If I believe my student had had less training and less calmness and presence of mind and he had had the gun up and be looking at the guy over the sights with his finger on the trigger when the cop rolled up. I would certainly expect that that would be a far worse outcome for the student and far higher intensity interaction with the police officer where the cop might have been telling him, you know, drop the gun, drop the gun. And unfortunately, sometimes people have guns in their hand and they get yelled at and they turn with the gun in their hand because that's like a natural reaction. And in this case, the whole situation was handled very well, but it mainly was because my student had been trained to draw to that that muzzle-averted position as opposed to just whip the gun out there and point it at somebody with your finger on the trigger as your first response. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, that makes absolute sense. And what I'm picking up is that the law enforcement officer recognized with that position that this is a guy who's in control of his firearm and it's clearly the result of some training and- I, I believe the, that the
1: the patrol officer recognized the behavior of a trained person
2: yeah, and said, This is probably not the bad guy. And, and was well, Yeah, that part was obvious. The yeah. homeless
1: guy was at the front door pounded on it. And my student was at a, a good enough distance that the guy couldn't have gotten up and grabbed his gun. He wasn't on top of the guy. They had separated because um, my student had, again, my student had confidence. He was managing in his shooting, that distance. His skills, and yeah, he said it was, you know, seven or eight yards, and he he was deliberately maintained. A lot of distance so that if the guy charged at him, he had time and space to respond and he wasn't right on top of the person pointing the gun in his face, right? That's another one of those differences. Untrained people, when we want to be aggressive with someone, we get right up in their face. We get look him in the nose. We get our hand up, right? We do all these human proxemics, body language behaviors, and the student consciously did not do those things, I believe, because we had explained that, that you don't need to do those things and when you get close to somebody with a gun in your hand, the likelihood that you can fight over the gun or end up having to shoot the gun because you don't have time. Um, he used all those things and successfully managed this situation where there was, you know, he was never in handcuffs mm-hmm. or never any criminal charges. It was he put his gun back in the holster. The, the police officer they didn't even discuss the fact that he had a gun again, according to the student account, that once he holstered the pistol back in his holster, then then the rest of the encounter uh, the gun, his having a gun was never, it was just never an issue.
2: Yeah. I want to underscore something Don said earlier and related to that fantastic example. And Don, you said one of our big conclusions from all the work that we've done and all the cases that we've explored is that there's almost always a choice that the armed defender makes before pulling the trigger that could have changed the course of the whole encounter in a very dramatic way and probably in most cases precluded the need to discharge the firearm. And so Carl in that example that you gave there's a armed defender who's well trained, understands distance, uh managed himself in a way where he didn't actually end up having to fire that weapon. And and that happens all the time I think when people are able to avoid a shooting because they've had the type of training that you're talking about.
1: Yeah. Well, and in this case, this person, this was his second second encounter. Austin, Texas has a large homeless population, uh, mental illness, erratic behavior, drug use. And Austin has a prosecutor that is uh, anti-police and anti-armed citizen. And so there's, uh, there's a lot of challenges for my students in the Austin area. And in this case, this student had had another encounter prior to this one with a homeless person in a parking lot months prior and he didn't handle it as well it didn't nothing went bad but it was a case where he got too close he had his hand on his gun and he moved closer to the homeless person and the homeless person basically taunted him and said you can't shoot me right you can't shoot me for being for not moving when you tell me to move the homeless person was smart enough to realize and he basically called my students bluff and the, the student, they were finally rescued when the manager of the store that the student was in the parking lot of walked outside and told the homeless person to leave because the manager could charge, could claim this guy was trespassing. But when they were both in the parking lot, there was nothing there. And I think that that particular student, realizing that he had, had kind of screwed up or put himself in an awkward situation, I think that also had a great deal of value that he, he reconsidered. And we, you know, we had a long conversation after that one. And some of our discussions afterward, that's when I, we talked about some of these other things. And I think that also had a great deal to do with the fact that he managed the second one far better. That, But again, he didn't overreact. He didn't pull his gun the first time. He knew that he couldn't pull his gun, but he was stuck psychologically because he was thinking that he couldn't retreat and he couldn't go back in the store. And he, his emotional response, your natural emotional response was, you know, he moved closer and wanted to intimidate and, you know, do those things that we try to do. We try to win an aggressive argument. Uh, and that, that, I guarantee you that first experience affected his behavior the second time around.
2: Those real-world examples that Carl just gave us demonstrate how an armed defender needs to have skills that go beyond just their gun handling and their shooting skills. And that an understanding, a tactical understanding of how to handle unknown contacts, potential threats, is key. In our last podcast, Don talked to Carl about his force-on-force training. And uh, Carl's going to explain a little bit about what that is and why he sometimes has trouble getting students to explore that part of their practice. Here's Carl.
1: Don, your comment about Force on Force, when they do the four hours of Force on Force scenarios with us, they are not ninjas repelling from helicopters with a six-man gunfight with <laughs> SWAT team stuff. It's you're in the Seven Eleven, you're in the parking lot, mm-hmm. right? We we'll put six or eight people in a scenario where most of the people are just regular bystanders or random people in the scenario, and you may or may not even be in the scenario. There's there's scenarios we run where the bad guy comes in and robs the Seven Eleven, and the carry permit holder is over in the deli eating a slice of pizza, and the carry permit holder's correct response is to move to cover observe at best possibly draw to a retention position if they decide that anything needs to be done but they practice the whole goal of that four-hour block of training is to give them life experience like the other student had the life experience with the actual homeless person we're trying to give them relevant life experience something i do that's different in force on force training that others that do force on force training don't do is every student is involved in learning in every scenario so in a 4 hour class students get to do you know 8 12 16 different scenarios they may get to be the bad guy they may be the clerk they may be the responding police officer they may be the unarmed bystander in the store but they get that lived experience traditional force on forces you all wait outside and one at a time the person goes in and goes through the scenario and everybody else does nothing and you get one scenario per hour if it's a well-run program, and you may be at one scenario every two or three hours. And we tried to maximize the amount of learning that takes place. And so students get a lot more life experience in that course. Now, the funny thing is motivating people to take the force-on-force and the tactics courses. I have two students in class on Saturday. They've completed everything in my program except that four-hour non-shooting, non-force-on-force tactics class.
0: Why is that? Why are they reluctant or hesitant or? Everybody
1: wants happy, fun, shooty gun time. Everybody wants to take their toys to the range and they want to shoot a lot of bullets and they want that thousand round, you know, two day, 500 round, thousand round, happy, fun gun shooting class because we like shooting. It's nobody wants to talk about that fact that people take shooting classes because it's fun to take shooting classes. They don't need another carbine class. Right. They don't need a plate carrier. They don't need a battle belt. It's fun to put all that stuff on and do all these things that are largely no have no context in your life. But learning how to deal with a homeless person in a parking lot using an inert pepper spray—that's not sexy or cool or fun. It doesn't lead to Instagram views. It doesn't help your social media popularity. And it's just not as much fun as you know yelling contact and blasting off a mag of AR rounds at ten yards. You know, and so.
0: But in some ways, though, Carl, that means. That, that means they're missing the point in many ways. Uh, if, if you're going to learn how to defend yourself within the context that you find yourself, which is going to be one of those everyday type scenarios, you have to start with the mindset, don't you, that that's what you want to learn how to do and then set about actually learning to do it.
1: Many people are in this, Many, even many in the training junkie world, the people that take tons of classes, it's fun. They come because it's fun. It's the same reason people shoot matches. It's fun to go to the range and shoot your gun and hang out with shooters and not be socially persecuted for having a gun and not dealing with all that and hanging out with like minded people and just having a good time hanging out. And sometimes people come to these classes because they want to hang out with someone that is famous. Right. It's like, well, I'm going to go take, you know, when I was taking classes from Chip, it was telling my friends was like, you don't understand. This is like taking golf lessons from Jack Nicklaus. Right, that that when you go take a class from a national champion shooter or a Delta Force guy, you know any of these famous celebrity type people, right? It's cool to go do that, and you can learn a lot from being around them. But that still, you know, there's guys that will do that, and then they carry the you know the 38 snub in their pocket with no holster at dinner. Put their you know three thousand dollar AR-15 back in their truck, and when they go to dinner, they they may not even have a gun. There's people who shoot matches that don't carry.
0: And, and so- that sort, of, that sort of reminds me of the, uh, the guy that wants to spend his retirement fishing and swimming and forgets that he, when he goes out in his boat to fish that he doesn't know how to swim after all. So he misses the very thing that could save his life and save the life of his family, um, skipping over that port part to get to the fun part.
3: In reference to classes like Force on Force, uh, do you think that part of the reason that people may be reluctant to take classes like that is fear of failure in Absolutely. front of other
1: people? Absolutely. Yeah. You, you're not going to fail when you're shooting a, a, a paper target and there's no penalty if you, you know shoot a miss or a D zone hit or whatever. And it's not a big deal. But yeah, emotionally, it can be it can be crushing to run a scenario and fail completely at it. We that's why, you know, like at home, my, my program, we take an approach that, okay, we're going to do the classroom lecture to explain to you what the answers are. Then we're going to do the red gun and the inert pepper spray stuff where you get to practice doing things correctly. Then we're going to put you in the scenario. If we haven't prepared you for the scenario, if we haven't taught you what you need to win before we send you into the scenario. Then we haven't trained you properly. And there are. I think it's to a certain degree, it's a straw man, but everybody always says, well, these force on force programs, they just, you know, the instructors come in and they're so much better and they just set people up to fail. I haven't really seen that. I think the majority of people that do force on force don't do that, but the perception is out there. That that's what it is. And and well, basically, what, what it, does is it shows the lack of confidence that the people have in their abilities to do these things, which should motivate them to go get the training to be better at it. But it doesn't. It's just like, well, I'll go. go I'll go take another carbine class.
3: Well, one of the things that I think uh, taking classes like that actually does is the very fact that you're putting yourself in a stressful position in which basically you can fail in front of others. Uh, If you continue to go ahead and just say, I'm going to do it anyway, uh, you take classes like that, you engage in competitions. After a while, that actually becomes a form of stress inoculation. And the very fact that you participated in something like that actually prepares you better for a real life encounter, you know, out in the street or someone trying to break into your house.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. The, the life experience part of it and the, well, for example, when I was an early competition shooter, my first local match, right. I was, you know, it was, that was a super stressful by my 30th local match. It was no stress at all. My first area championship, very stressful. My fourth area championship, not so much. My first world speech Shooting championship, match was you know clammy hands and oh my god i can't believe i'm shooting the world championship match of course i came in 120th you know it wasn't like i was at risk of winning the thing at that level but and i shot pretty good actually for where i was at that time to come in 120th and i went home fairly happy with that Uh, but then looking at the difference between where i was and where i wanted to be right as i practiced harder and harder uh, you know the stress of going to the match changed and yes, absolutely. When you subject yourself to low level stress, that makes the low level stress becomes less stressful and the higher level. What was it? Jim Cirillo once wrote in his book that the you know his You're actual mad. shooting incidents were less stressful than some of the PPC matches that he'd shot, which I think people don't understand that. But uh, to a certain degree, given that he had been a street cop and had drawn guns on people quite a bit, it wasn't his first time to point a gun at someone when he actually had to pull the trigger and so that part sort of neglected I think more importantly than the PPC matches is the fact that he had years of life experience in situations that could have easily become a shooting situation so when the trigger finally needed to be pulled it just wasn't a novel experience to him John Hearn talks about that that the key to performance in a stressful situations not having it be a novel experience
2: In this next segment of the podcast, Carl's going to talk about the phenomenon that some armed defenders have, that they get emotionally involved in a confrontation and they forget that they can sometimes simply walk away without having to elevate to the use of deadly force. We're gonna talk about the idea of preclusion to avoid deadly conflict. And we're gonna talk a little bit about how what you say on social media can come back to help you or hurt you if you should face charges after a self-defense shooting. I wanted to circle back, Carl, to something that you said about that students encounter with the, the homeless person and less sexy even than managing OC spray is going in and getting a manager and asking them to trespass the vagrant who's hanging out by your car. And you'd also mentioned that for some folks, the it doesn't occur to them when they get entwined with somebody in one of these confrontations, that they can simply back up and probably walk away if they can do so safely. And do you find that uh, with your students, that that somehow the the imagination of alternative options here, besides going through with a confrontation even exist?
1: Well, for example, with vehicles, if you're between the, the Walmart store and your vehicle, and you're determined to go to your vehicle. Then you have it in your mind that it's your right that you should be allowed to go to your vehicle. And if someone interacts with you at your vehicle, that you need to stay and defend your vehicle. And, and there's really—it's it, emotional, right? It's emotional. And there is a couple of guys on the internet on one of the forums that I'm on that was, you know, complaining about tactical cowards. We're training a, a, a generation of tactical cowards who won't do the right thing. Like, well, you know, that's—that's that's a guy that hasn't been close enough to these situations, I think, to really understand how bad things can go. The the point that I make to students now that they really don't, many don't ever think about is this. Uh, One of my assistant instructors was involved in self-defense shooting. It was on the front page of the local newspaper. It was talked about on talk radio. And while he was eventually no bill by the grand jury, it was six months out of his life. And now, anytime he goes to look for a new job and they Google his name, guess what's going to pop up, right? You can't hide from them you've been involved in the incidents it it doesn't it sticks around a lot longer it's got legs and so if your name is printed in an online article related to self-defense then you're going to be answering up to that or simply right what if what if he makes the the top five list on a a set of things and the hr people google all their names to look for negative stuff and that pops up and it's some san francisco-based company that's all uh, anti-gun and they go well all these all five of these resumes are good. This this guy has been involved with self-defense shooting. We're going to pitch that one right out. That's straight to the trash can. And people don't think of the consequences related to that downstream either. And so I'm not telling people don't defend yourself, right? There are situations where that becomes the right answer. And there are unavoidable situations where you can't get out of it and you need to recognize those. But the same token, be aware that the downstream, the downstream consequences can be things that you didn't even anticipate.
2: Yeah, we say you don't win a criminal prosecution, you merely survive it and because of some of the consequences that you talked about there.
1: Yeah. I and mean, in this case, that 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 individual has always been very judicious about what he posted on social media and what his online presence was. And when we got the case file from the police department, they had gone and printed out like everything they could find on the internet about it. And they were looking at all that as character evaluation and that affected his case positively. But uh, for example, uh, I'm involved with an expert witness case right now where one of the people involved posted death threats on Facebook. And it's part of the police case file where her statements online were absolutely contributed to his mindset and his perception that he was in danger, which led to him, having a gun with him at the time that the incident happened and people think that it's you know they can just get on the internet and post whatever they want make whatever threats they want and again that stuff hangs around it hangs around and it, it can affect it can affect the cases.
2: I told you that Carl also serves often as an expert witness on behalf of armed defenders who face prosecution after a self-defense shooting. That experience makes him a particularly effective firearms instructor since he can talk about things from both perspectives, the fight and then the legal fight afterwards, and we're going to talk to him a little bit about some real-life cases that he's working on They give us some real-world perspective.
0: You you know, Carl, uh, Sean and I approach these situations from the legal perspective, usually after everything has happened and we're there trying to pick the jury and uh, argue legal issues and present the elements of self-defense in court, trying to rebut prosecution evidence, that sort of thing. Whereas Steve is the tactical guy. He's, He's the guy that can get it done when it needs to get done and has the insight and experience to know when those other choices um, exist, when you can avoid and de-escalate and the confidence to know that he has a little more time than most people before he has to uh, actually present and fire the gun. So you put all that together and we've got kind of the full The full picture of a self defense scenario, but I'm interested at this point hearing a little bit more about the kinds of issues, the circumstances under which you might be called as an expert witness. I'm assuming, as an expert witness, you are in a legal proceeding, perhaps civil, perhaps criminal, uh, and I'd like to know um, how this. Situation that resulted in uh, someone claiming self-defense winds up in the courtroom uh, with you on the stand. Uh, was well, a wide range of them, right? Uh, one was a case. Uh, well, I
1: shouldn't even tell you the city, but there was a case where a uh, young man was hired by a nightclub to be a bouncer, or security person, and. This, at the end of it, he ended up uh, shooting someone that charged at him physically larger than he was, and he ended up, and the video evidence in that case was what saved him, that the video of his actions, because interestingly enough, um, he used a muzzle averted Position. He drew his gun to a muzzle averted position, had it close to his body, like in a weapon retention, don't grab my gun kind of position. And the other person kept advancing toward him. He kept backing up, backing up, backing up. Finally, the guy lunged, tried to grab his gun. He was able to fend that first attack off. When the guy made a second attack and tried to grab his gun, the client fired one shot, backed up. The person he shot fell down and he cooperated with police and the video that came from an across the street video camera actually is what saved him that, that that after he finally, after a year in jail of being delayed and denied a trial, he finally was given his time in court and took three hours for the jury. Basically I provided a video analysis and they presented that. And I explained essentially that the risk that someone grabs your gun, that they're going to shoot you with it, that that's a serious concern. And that any police officer that had been trained, Someone tries to grab your gun. That's that's pretty standard. Somebody tries to disarm you and and take your gun away. Uh, And in this case, this guy had some military training. And so that helped. What did you know and when did you know it? Right. Uh, Mm -hmm. But several of the other cases were went the other way when people didn't know what they didn't know and got into basic violations of moving too close with a gun out. Uh, Setting a gun down where someone else could pick it up. That's a case I'm working right now. Person had a gun. He mm-hmm. sets it down on the sofa where the person he's having the dispute with. I think he was trying to de-escalate the situation, and the other person grabbed the gun, and they ended up fighting over the gun, and they both got shot with that gun in the process of the resolution of it.
0: So, in in that first situation, you were allowed to testify as an expert from the perspective of a, a trained uh, person seeing someone, experiencing someone try to get the gun and what that means in context and what a reasonable response to that would be.
1: Right. And that's going to come up again, this case that I'm uh, talking about now, where they set the gun on the sofa and they fought over it, that what I'm going to end up getting paid to do if the family can find the money to do it, is we're going to do a video recreation of what we believe happens. That's sort of interesting. There's no video of that one. However, there was a police officer was standing right outside the door, pounding on the door, asking to be let in while the incident was happening. And so there's audio from the police officer's body cam, audio and video. And so we were able to get the timing of what happened because you can hear, you can't understand the words, but you can hear who's speaking in the timing and you can hear the timing of the shots, the Mm -hmm. sequence of the Mm -hmm. shots. You, You can get the timing of the incident from that. And then the, after the first couple shots are fired, the police officer kicks open the door, and you can see where people ended up after the shots were fired. Like literally milliseconds after the shots were fired, there's two people laying on the ground, and we know where they were. And the only problem is one person is dead, and the other person is on trial. And the challenge is what trying to give the jury a concept of what actually happened, and trying to come up with a a hypothesis that matches the physical evidence and the body camera and what is possible based on how fast people can move and what can occur. So we're going to to take his account and all the evidence we have and try to construct a video replication of what we believe happens using all those things, trying to make our story line up as best we can with all the material that we have to hopefully make it where they can't poke holes in it and say, well, that couldn't Mm -hmm. happen Uh, because of the timing in particular, there's a limited, there's a limited amount of things that can happen. There's only so far people can move in a second or a second and a half and there are multiple shots being fired. And we know, we know where the bullets ended up and who they ended up in and and when they missed where they went. And so we have a fair amount of data. We even have scuff marks on the wall where the ejected brass from the gun hit and chipped the paint on the wall. So we even know from the forensic evidence where someone was standing when the shots were fired. So we have a lot of data to work with. So I'm going to, like Steve said, I have a background in engineering. I have a master's degree in acoustics. I've got 3000 hours of formal training from 90 different trainers in all the huge broad spectrum of things. So really I'm having to use all of that stuff to try to put something together, which I think will hopefully become the, the accepted version of this is based on what we know. This is what happened because mm-hmm. the good news for the client is if we put that together, that does help his case. Uh, given given all the circumstances, it's still uh, jury's probably going to have to decide whether him shooting after he got his gun back uh, that still may end up being a judgment call on the jury. That it's that's going to be that's going to be a hard one. All we're going to be able to do is show the urgency and the timing and the need that he realistically believed that if since he'd been shot twice with his own gun, and then he gets the gun back in his hand and the other person is still close enough to grab the gun back again, that not firing versus firing, that's going to be the decision, right? It's like, well, you got shot, you got your gun back. Why did you, why did you shoot? Well, the person was still close enough that we could have fought over the gun again. And I was afraid that I was going to get shot again if I lost control of the gun. Perfectly reasonable thing for someone to believe in that situation, particularly after they've been shot twice.
0: Sure just uh, you you will be challenged. there will be motions filed, there will be hearings outside the presence of the jury and uh, we've been involved in cases where we had what we thought was very competent qualified, narrow expert testimony that the court narrowed further or even excluded the use of force expert. I, I think a lot of judges frown on that. they don't want an expert coming in and substituting their opinion or their judgment, for that of the jury well
1: and uh, the uh, that first case i told you about the uh, the bouncer nightclub case i was actually not allowed to testify but the lawyer that presented the case used the written material right i gave him we had the video and i gave a moment by moment frame by frame analysis of the video in a written form to the lawyer and because we were afraid that i might be excluded from testifying but he used that information when he presented the case and Mm -hmm. was able to essentially Mm -hmm. show them the video. And, and he gave my, he presented my analysis of it to the jury anyway.
0: Yeah. So you became, you went from kind of a testifying expert to more of a consulting expert that you helped the lawyer make a better presentation than he would have made without your, without your assistance, sort of did an end run around the judge's, decision to exclude you as a witness to get the material in front of the jury just through a different sure we work
1: another case where that one where I read all those text messages um, I never actually ended up testifying or having to go to court because the lawyer kept working with the defense lawyer kept working with the uh, the prosecutor and they went back and forth repeatedly until they got down to a plea deal that was acceptable to the client because that one that one had some issues right and that was fun for me because I kept I ended up in our discussions, I was always the prosecutor and I was always the one asking, well, how are you going to answer this question? How are we going to respond? to this? What if they ask this? How do you how do we address this? There were enough problems with the client's behavior and particularly after their life history between the two of them became clear. Uh, it went from intruder in the house to uh, ex-boyfriend, love triangle uh, <laughs> and. There was there was a number of complicating factors.
0: Well, we we talk about those kinds of things when Sean and I and Steve do these case analysis, and we talk about experiences we've had in court ourselves. And a couple of things from this part of the conversation jumps out at me. One is there's no guarantee that the testimony will be admitted, and there very well may be some problems with the case to start with, and. The f- one that really caught my ear was the one where the video ultimately saved the guy that was the former bouncer, I guess. The where the guy was trying to get his gun. What really operative words I heard there, where he spent a year in jail before the uh, jury acquitted him in three hours. So there's a lost year, right? A year in jail for what seemed to be a fairly obvious, uh, legitimate use of force. So. We don't want to get there if we can ever avoid it. You know, that's the emphasis and the critical importance of if there is a way to avoid having to use deadly force, you've solved all of the problems before they've even started. And we've seen lots of cases. Well, Sean and I have had clients that have been acquitted, walked out of the courtroom completely not guilty. But look at what their lives were like for that year or two after the incident uh, until they were acquitted,
1: that's definitely this particular client. He didn't have the financial resources to. This was a public defender lawyer, and he had to get approval uh, to pay me for my time from the you know for the court. And uh, they basically, this guy had no. He didn't have CCW safe. He didn't have ACLDN. He didn't have uh, all of that. Uh, he didn't have a carry permit. He. Uh, Right. One of the issues that came up in that case was when when this person refused to leave, the client called a friend of his and says, I'm going to need my gun. And the the friend brought him his pistol. And that's on the video. You Uh see the car pull up and the friend literally hands him a pistol out of the car window and then drives off, leaving him standing there on the sidewalk with this this person. Uh Instead of calling the police at that point he attempted to solve the problem himself without and that was one of the the issues that came up was why didn't he call the police Mm -hmm. there's always there's always gotcha in there somewhere
2: as we wrap up today's podcast we're going to talk a little bit more about what carl offers in his training uh and let you know how you could take advantage of that if you wanted to He's got a website. It's krtraining.com. That's krtraining.com, like Carl Wren. And uh, you can take a look and see what he has to offer. He's there in Austin, Texas. Uh, Here's Don talking to Carl a little bit about what you can learn from
0: his workshops. Carl, I think it would be helpful to talk about the components one more time of your training. Sort of the big picture of what you do what you're trying to accomplish and why it's so important to go through the entire program. Uh, now you've organized it in such a way that it's blocks. You can take at different points in time. I assume you don't have to do them all in the same weekend or the same week, but uh, at the, what is it you're hoping to get or this do you want the students to get at the end of, end of the process? And then um, just before we finally wrap up, uh, I'm fascinated by your music career. So maybe take a second and tell what your uh, your other day job is. Oh, gosh.
1: Okay. Well, that, I'll try to be sure on that one. Let, let's go back to the training program. So everything in our world is trying, we spend a lot of time thinking about priority of skills. And the assumption is if you only take, for example, if you only take defensive one, in four hours, we teach you how to draw from the holster and get effective hits and teach them to to shoot at a speed that's realistic. And so if you get the book and you look at our minimum competency standards, really after that four hour course, we get people up to what we consider absolute minimum competency is. So we don't don't expect everyone that takes a single class from us is gonna go through the whole 40 hour program. I had a student recently complete the program it's taken him like 15 years to get through it, right? There are people that knock out the whole program in a year and there are people that knock it out over a long period of time. What we do is we schedule two, three, or four of those classes over a weekend. So some people come and they take one four-hour class and they come back later. Some people take one four-hour class and never come back, right? We our retention rate's pretty good uh, for that, but it's the whole idea is. They, we prioritized all the stuff that's normally taught. You look at Gunsight 250, which is sort of the gold standard for this kind of training. And we look at all everything that's taught in that or Thunder Ranch, uh, the old five-day Thunder Ranch defensive handgun one, what's taught in that. And we prioritized all that stuff based on likelihood of need. So for example, reloads is way down the list. Drawing from concealment is number one on the list, getting effective hits in the three to seven yard range, number two on the list. But then after that, it's the decision making stuff. So if they do the whole thing, they get they get hours and hours, you know, 16, 20 hours of shooting drills, plus low light shooting, plus force on force, plus the tactics stuff. We're using uh, Brian and Shelley Hill's image based decisional drills, which is a fantastic program. And if you haven't had them on your podcast, I would tell you, get a hold of Brian and Shelley and get them to tell you about the IBDE program, which is genius absolute genius for teaching decision making under stress. It's a, uh, they have a, a instructor program and that can be done as a precursor to force on force training by any instructor anywhere. And uh, really one of the most exciting things that I can uh, you know point out about new things that are going on that we use it and a lot of people are using it too. But at the end of 40 hours, they get a whole block of that includes decision making, thinking with a gun in your hand, pepper spray, 3D targets, shoot house work, live fire shoot house work, uh, they get the force on force stuff. I take the force on force on the road. If I can plug that, I'll be in Baton Rouge in January. FRC is hosting me. They have a two story indoor house with a car in it. We're going to run two days of scenarios there. It'll be two different one day classes. I'm going to Culpeper, Virginia in June. I'll be at the range master tactical conference in March. I'll be at the NRA conference in April. And I offer classes every weekend at home. Now the people that are going to go to the KR training website right now, they're not going to see very much because we haven't posted our 2023 schedule yet but if you check back or if you subscribe to our email list or follow us on facebook or twitter or instagram or any of that when we announce classes we post it everywhere and we've got all kinds of stuff going on and so uh, we're just right now we're in we're at the end of the year slow down we close our range for deer season Uh, our neighbors tolerate a lot of shooting 10 months out of the year and the last two months we go quiet and so that's my time to reorganize for the next year, work on writing a new book, work on website, work on promotional stuff, all get organized for 2023. So you're you're catching us right in the lull period where you're not going to see a bunch of stuff, but we've been running classes hard and heavy for the last 10 months. So and where's gonna, that
2: range? Carl? It,
1: it was, it's the care training range. It's the A zone range. We own it. It's a hundred acre facility and it's got, yeah, a where classroom. is it in the world? Oh, uh, central Texas, just outside of Austin, Texas. Our last class of the year is Steve Moses and Palisades training coming down to do the church security instructor class for us. We've got a sold out class with 20 students in it and uh, a lot of excited people ready, ready for that, including me. I'm looking forward to taking that class quite a bit. With regards to the music, I've been playing music in bars uh, since I was about, oh, gosh, 1983. That's a long time, almost 40, 50 years and uh, 40 years. I don't know. I've lost count. 40 years. And uh, I played last year, I played 180 performances as a musician, various events and everything from Cowboy Church to, you know, uh, the Y.O. Ranch and the Houston Rodeo. I play with a bunch of different bands. And that's just an ongoing thing. If you go to Carl Wren Music uh, on YouTube, I got tons of videos and I've got albums out on, you know, Amazon, uh, E-Music and iTunes and all that stuff. Uh, That's just an ongoing thing. And uh, not after I retired from 30 years of working for the state of Texas, doing various, various uh, research and instructional tasks, I went from doing military R&D to teaching homeland security classes over my career with the state. Now I'm retired from that. And yeah, all I do is, is play music for people and teach people about shooting and self-defense. And now I'm doing more church security assessments and expert witness work and trying to finish another book. So you know, there's always something going on.
0: Your day must be longer than 24 hours. I don't know how all you fit that in, but uh, <laughs> good for you. Good for you.
1: Staff of assistant instructors that helped me do a lot of things.
2: I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry, Carl. You're overqualified to be on our podcast. Oh, no. <laughs> all right, everybody. That's the podcast for today. Thanks for listening through to the end. I'm working with Don and Steve on a little something. We're going to be covering the fundamentals of home defense. Until then, be smart, stay safe, take care.
1: Ninjas repelling from helicopters with-